Good morning. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, be with, us, be with us this morning and speak to us through your word. Lord, illuminate for us what your call to, to unity looks like and what it looks like to love each other the way that you have loved us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When I was 20 uh, and a junior in college at Liberty University, I decided to drive rather than to fly from Virginia to California with my best friend, Kevin. We didn't have any money for hotels, so we, every night on the road meant that we would have to sleep in our cars. We planned to do, to do the drive in 48 hours, divided between 12, four 12-hour days. And at the last minute, a few acquaintances of ours asked us if they could go with us. And we, knowing that we had an old car and that it could break down at any minute, decided that that would be a happy, a happy arrangement. But when we got on the road, it became apparent very soon that they did not share the plans that we had. They stopped everywhere to go to the bathroom, to eat, to look at all the sites in Virginia and Tennessee, every single one. Uh, the first night, after traveling five hours to get to the Great Smoky, or ten hours to get to the Great Smoky Mountains, which should have taken us five hours, we found a rest area, parked, and slept overnight in the, in, the front, in the front seat of our friend's car. Needless to say, the next morning we were not happy. We knew that we had to sleep in a car, but we did not want to do this for six or seven nights, but we stuck with it until the fourth morning when we arrived at Amarillo, Texas. And I don't know if you've driven the 40 from, the, from, the, from one coast to the other, the big Texan steakhouse ranch, home of the 72-ounce steak challenge. Well, my buddies, who were in college and poor, and also with a car that barely worked, decided that that was how they were gonna eat today. But it wasn't time yet for the competition. They had to wait three or four hours in Almarillo to eat this competition. Well, me and my friend Kevin, we said, nope, we've had enough with your shenanigans. We're done, we're out, we're going. And we shot out of Amarillo uh, very speedily. I won't tell you the exact range, 90 miles an hour. And it took us about, we drove 19 hours that day. We started in Oklahoma and we ended up at Biola University uh, at about midnight, where we pulled in to meet an old childhood friend of ours who put us up with a bed, a bed that we were very happy to have after four nights of not having, a, or three nights of not having a bed. We were content because for us in that moment, Getting to our destination was more important than who we got there with. In our lectionary reading from Paul, from Romans 12, Paul has something to say about that perspective. Namely, that our, our destination is actually bound up with who we are traveling with. Up to this point of Romans, Paul has focused primarily on the relationship of God to man. And rather than walk through the Romans road with you this morning, I'll I'll, I'll allow you to, to, to take the time to, to read that, how we are justified by faith and how it's not a work of ourselves, that we have peace through God and that he has, because it is his work that we are bound to him forever and that we can't be separated. But he begins to shift that focus in chapter 10 and to tell us about Israel, who are the native branches of God's tree of covenant relationship with the humanity. And the church has been grafted in and should remain humble because of that fact. In fact, if they become unfaithful, they can also be cut off, just like Israel. And in fact, if Israel were to be grafted back in, they would actually fit better than us. And so we should be humble about that fact and be gracious. In fact, here's a little mystery that Paul wants to, and, and Paul tells us, here, Paul tells the church in Romans, here's a little mystery. 
I act, God actually did that on purpose. He allowed the hardening of Israel so that all of the Gentiles could come to know him. Oh, how wonderful is the depth of God's wisdom. Because, and this is my paraphrase, out of disobedience and death, God has intended a greater good, the redemption of the world. And this is how he begins chapter 12. Therefore, because of that wonderful thing, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Embodied because we are bodies and because we offer our lives to him through the actions that we take. Renew your mind and be conformed to the world. In other words, set your mind and heart and body apart for Christ's use. Because Christ, and here's the part that I think is really important, Christ is your head and he gives us a new identity. He tells us that we are his body. We are now united together like flesh and blood and sinew and bone. And like a body, each member of you has a part to play. Through God's grace, he has given us spiritual gifts that without which we would not be able to, to not survive, to flourish, that we would not be able to become holy. We would not be able, and that is our reasonable act of service, that we would actually love each other with our gifts for our common flourishing. Which brings us to today's reading. Now, I'm going to spend most of my time on 9 and 10. Um, 9 through 13 is really the focus because 9 through 13 is really Paul's discussion to the church. This is how you should live your reasonable act of living sacrifice. And then from 14 on, he sort of talks a little bit more about how it is that we relate to the world, though there, is, there are also things that are related to us. Now, many commentators actually believe that the scripture reading today is Paul just lifting off, listing off a set of unrelated commands as a punctuation mark. But I believe that Paul, having told the church who they are, and I'm going to use a big word here, metaphysically, meaning this is what your identity is, he now gives them an ethical command. He tells them what they should do with the fact that they've become this thing. You are the body of Christ. Now do this. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. The Greek word for uh, the actual, the, the literal translation is let love be without hypocrites or hypocrisy. Uh, this is the, the name given to stage actors in Greek, in Greek drama. And, 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 and literally, don't let your love be a play acted out for an audience. Because any time that we love each other and that love is done for any other reason than loving the person or the good of the person that we are loving, we are actually not loving them. That means if we're doing it for honor or for recognition, then we are, we are hypocrites. Next, genuine love discerns good and evil, clinging to the good and hating what is evil. We've just said that to love someone is to seek their good. And that's not just a generic idea that we should pursue what we think they feel good or whatever good they determine. To pursue someone's good is to pursue what is good for them. And what is good for them is determined by God. So what is the good? Uh, if any of you have taken an intro to philosophy class, you know that the what is the good is the question that philosophy has perennially been attempting to answer for 3,000 years or so, probably longer. I mean, I think even the Hammurabi Code is, 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 is that civilization's attempt to figure out what the good is. Thankfully, we don't have to do that today, though I would love to. We're going we're gonna to look at scripture. Mark 10, 8. Jesus says, why do you call me good? Now, he's being kind of a smart aleck because these people are asking him. They're calling him good teacher. And he's throwing it back in their face. Of course, we know that Jesus is God. So, of course, he is good. But he's kind of being, like I said, he's being a bit of a smart aleck. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That part is true, though, because no one is good except for God alone. 
And yet in creation, when God created the world, he actually says that it is good. So how do we reconcile those two things? God's goodness is dependent only on himself. Creation's goodness is good because God, who is good, intended it for his good purposes. So everything in creation is dependent upon God's goodness. He, we participate, is a big theological word, we participate in his goodness. Our reading from Psalm today illustrates this really very well, that goodness is, is living according to the purpose that God has designed us. If you guys wouldn't mind, could I put that in Psalm 119, verse 39? Psalm 19 is often called David's love letter to God's law. Because David knew that God's law was a blueprint for how God intended us to flourish. And that the only way to have shalom, which Father Peter has shared with us before, is, is, is much bigger than the simple word peace. It's the happiness that comes from a life that is whole, was to live as God intended for us to live. I'm, I'm going to read a little, a little portion of that. Turn away the reproach, the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. And verse 40. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Now, in our modern American way of thinking about things, we may think of that as, as you've been commanded, therefore you do, and as a result, God rewards you for doing the good. It's so much bigger than that. God created us to be for something. And when we do the things that he created us to be, we become righteous and happy and whole and shalom and filled with, with happiness. So it turns out that to know the good, right? We have to cling to the good. We have to know the good. To know the good, we have to know God. And to know God, we have to know his law. Because through his, through his law, we are, he reveals his purposes. But as John Calvin says, we must have double knowledge. We must know God and we must also know ourselves. Both what we are created for through God's law, which God has told us in his word, and also what false beliefs we hold, because it will be difficult to actually seek the good of the people that we are loving if we actually believe false things about them, uh, or what uh, false, false beliefs about their, their, about if we believe false things about what it is for them to be flourishing. We choose to do what we think to be good, even when we often do evil. And if our beliefs about the good are false, we will do evil. Peter Kreeft, a Catholic philosopher, uh, is, has this to say about Augustine's discussion of love. Our job is not to make the heart beat, but to make it beat right. It's always the heart, and by heart here he means the center, the heart of, the, the heart of man. The first, all that we are is determined by what we love. The king is always on the throne. Our job is to educate the king. He has the final authority. We have to direct it to good rather than evil. Thus, all good is rightly ordered love. To be good is to love, to will the good. And all evil is wrongly ordered love, disordered love. This, this is so important here. To be evil is to love, to will evil, to, to love evil things, or to love lesser goods more than greater goods, or to love self more than God, or to love things more than people. Evil is anything that gets in the way of God's design, and so we are to hate it because it is destructive and harmful to those people who, who, who it is living out in. So genuine love clings to the good and hates what is evil because that is what genuine love does. It pursues the good of the person that we love. 
Now you might think, didn't you just say that love is good, but good is love? That's a little bit of a circle. What are we gonna do with that? Hold on for a bit. Unless we think that this is a complicated task, knowing the whole law and knowing the good, and all the intricacies of God's commands, which, which uh, the rabbis and the Old Testament scholars spent much time doing. Jesus told us that all the law and all the prophets are summed up in two commandments, love God and love your neighbor. We cling to the good when we love God and when we love each other. And we can discern good and evil by asking ourselves this question every time we act. Am I doing this because I love my neighbor or because I love God? Even if I give up everything, if I don't do that because I love my neighbor or because I'm loving God, which, by the way, loving our neighbor is how we love God because God created them and we're loving his creation. We're loving the purposes that he has and we're honoring his creation by loving each other. Then we're doing evil. That is a high standard. That means that no matter what I do externally, if my heart is not turned toward him, then I am not loving him. And if my heart is not turned toward you, then I'm not loving him. What does it mean for us to love each other? Genuine love rightly relates us to family. I'm sorry, genuine love relates us as a family to each other. Love one another with brotherly affection. This isn't just a, a catchphrase. Just love each other affectionately. Be, be cool, you know, be, be happy, be warm. Paul means something very different when he talks about community than we would in our modern American concept. And for me, being an introvert and very analytical, uh, physical affection is not my, not my forte, not my strength, especially, uh, except among my kids. I can do it at home. Um, my, my girls, Ashley and uh, Maddie, who are going to be very mad that I just said their names, they actually have a thing where uh, they've seen me and my father, who, who taught me my physical affection mannerisms, do this thing where we do man hug, grab the hand, boom, like that, right around the shoulder. They do this very uh, vigorously with one another to the point where I think they're actually going to injure each other. And they go, man hug, and they're making fun of dad when they do it. Yeah, they're gonna, I'm not going to live with that. I'm not going to live that one down. For Paul... Uh, his idea of community, showing brotherly affection, was predicated on the idea that community was always prioritized over the individual. He uses the phrase, our God, 58 times in his epistles, and my God only once. Paul, like Christ, taught that the community of believers is a family. Specifically, we are brothers and sisters. And we should share affection for one another the way that, sh that siblings should. And I say should because even that natural bond, which was an analogy for us, it's supposed to help us to understand how deep our connection is, has been decimated in American culture. For many years, I never spoke to my brother uh, until we became friends after we were married. So for me to see this, I say, well, what does that mean? How do I, how do I love as a brother? I don't, I don't know what that means. In the ancient Near East, though, the sibling relationship was considered even more significant than the marriage relationship. This is because siblings are bound by flesh and blood something physically tangible from a natural standpoint, even greater than that sometimes of the marital bond. The family was the most fundamental unit of human community, and the success of the family took precedent over the success of any individual within it. As Christians, we have been bonded and brought together into a new community, a mystical body, and all other ties that bind us are less significant than the ties binding us to our spiritual brothers and sisters. We see this in Mark 10, 28 through 30, when Jesus tells his disciples, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or 
brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time. This isn't just a promise for eternity. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. In Mark 3, Jesus is asked, he's told where his mother and brothers are. They're waiting outside for him. And he says, who are my mothers and brothers? Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Brothers and sisters, if our goals for our life do not include goals for our spiritual brothers and sisters, or if when we make plans for our day, our week, our life, if those plans don't include each other's shalom, each other's virtue, each other's holiness, then we are failing to be his body. And we'll also miss out on this really cool reward because your victories are our victories. Your tragedies are our tragedies. Your failures are our failures. And your successes are our successes also. This isn't meant to deny that we are individually responsible for everything, for our own holiness. I am called to be holy, but I am also called with you all to be holy. And if my pursuit of holiness ignores yours, then I have failed to achieve my own. When I first came to Living Faith, one of the things that stood out very prominently and obviously was that this was a community of believers that loved each other deeply and affectionately. I've seen over and over that you are willing to go out of your way and make yourselves uncomfortable to meet, to meet each other's needs, even flying all the way to Rwanda to serve communities there who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. My own family has been blessed to receive gifts, financial support, and many examples of Christ's love and sacrificial giving. My hope today is that we would also evaluate whether we are as involved with each other's daily lives as we are in those moments of crisis and deep need. Do the rhythms of our week include each other? Are we praying together regularly and sacrificially, even if it means getting up early or driving somewhere inconvenient after work or fitting our schedule into the schedules of other people? We have a wonderful resource in the Book of Common Prayer, which was created just so that we could live in the rhythm of common prayer together. There have been multiple online prayer groups that have formed during the pandemic, but also I would, I would highly encourage you to find a way to do this in person, safely distance and outdoors if that's necessary, uh, according to the risks that you have medically. But find others who want to do this as long as it is wise for you to do so health-wise. Do we have that deep, undying affection that only brothers and sisters have for each other? Are we sharing meals and lives together? Are we seeking ways to meet the needs of those whom we cannot share meals or space with? I think that the, the shutdown from COVID-19 has brought this into sharp focus for us. This is a time of pretty extreme isolation for most of us, more than, more than we've ever experienced. Some of us with larger families, we've, we've been blessed at least to have uh, fellowship, but there are many who don't. And at times our family is not sufficient and we wanna sometimes throttle each other a little bit. It's more clear now than ever that we need each other and that some of us were living on crumbs. Once fellowship was taken away, we as a society started to hurt and even those of us in the church because we were living on crumbs of fellowship. The dopamine cycle from leisure consumption, which characterizes American culture and unfortunately has sometimes characterized us, 
wasn't enough to numb that. And so we are recognizing how much we need each other. And again, I'm speaking only to those who this is true about. I know that there are many who, who have deeply loved each other in our fellowship. The good news is that once things begin to reopen, we, the church, are poised, if we are willing, to step, to leap into that gap and to fulfill the need that we have for genuine love and to be that demonstration of Christ's love to the world to those who are around us so that they would be drawn to us and to him. And I want to leave you with a, with a, with a, with a final quote from Peter Kraft. It's, the, it's, this, it's a follow-up to the part that he that I, that I shared with you earlier. He's quoting Augustine, Augustine, Augustine. My, my professors argued about this a lot, and so I'm, I'm schizophrenic when I say the word Augustine. Um, Augustine says, my love is my gravity, or Kreft says, or my weight. Love pulls us. We go where our love takes us. Love is our spiritual gravity, our mass, our density, our destiny. It is Earth's destiny to orbit the sun because it is drawn by the sun's gravity into a stable orbit. We must do to God what the Earth does to the sun. We must have a stable orbit around God and not leave him for the darkness of outer space. We do this by love, which is voluntary, unlike physical gravity. Since all other movements of the soul are caused by love, we can educate and convert our emotions by educating and converting our love. If we love God with all our heart and our neighbors as ourselves, Everything else will follow. Everything. Amen.